Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Richard Brookheiser. Mr. Brookheiser is an American journalist, biographer, and historian, and is a senior editor at National Review. He has also written numerous books on the founding period of American history. Mr. Brookheiser is the 2016 Gay Heart Gaines Distinguished Visiting Lecturer of American History at the Washington Library. Today, he discusses his work on the study of George Washington. And now, Mr. Brookheiser and Dr. Bradburn. Well, hello everyone, here we are again. It's Doug Bradburn, I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington, here at beautiful Mount Vernon, and I'm joined uh, in this conversation with Rick Brookheiser. Rick, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's always great to be here. <laughs> well, this, is a, this should be a lot of fun. I think Rick and I have recorded a conversation in the past at a very nice restaurant in Manhattan, actually, near where you live by Union Square. The coffee shop? Yeah, the coffee well, shop. How did we record anything well, there? Well, th that was that's why we're doing it again. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, although we do have coffee mugs here, so we'll try to clang those a little bit, and right. and maybe Emily will come in and act like uh, you know one of the servers there to give to give the flavor that we had had going. Hard to replicate though. Now, uh, now Rick should be well known to everybody who is a follower of George Washington and and uh, and Mount Vernon. Uh, he has, of course, been writing about the founders since the mid-90s. Um, but you're also well-known as being a, a journalist and an editor at the National Review for right. many, many years. Right. Let's talk a little bit about that early entry point, because I think it's still everybody's kind of awed by this notion of you getting your first piece published uh, as a 15-year-old, really, uh, in uh, high school. How did that, how did that work? Well, I was a freshman in high school, and my older brother is six years older than I am. Yeah. So he was in college. He went to Yale. And as soon as he went to college, I wrote him a letter every week just saying what was going on, you know, back home and what was going on in school. And, you know, we knew a lot of the same people, or my friends were sons of his friends. Yeah. So I was keeping him up to date. And then in October... Was, was this something he encouraged you to do? Or well, was this, he, yeah, he uh, liked, he uh, liked uh, Yeah, stuff. correspondence. He wanted to be yeah, kept up. he wrote back. Nobody made long-distance calls back then. Right? Well, they were more expensive. <laughs> and uh, yeah. no internet, of course. Yeah. So in October of 1969, uh, on college campuses, there was a moratorium where people would cut classes and, and there would be uh, impromptu classes about the Vietnam War. Teach-ins or teach -ins, something. Teach-ins, yes, exactly, yeah. to say you know why it was wrong and mistaken and so on. Hmm. And so there were some kids in our high school. Um, I grew up in Arondequoit, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester, and I went to the public school there called hmm. Arondequoit High School. Mm -hmm. So there were some kids there who wanted to do a similar thing. And, uh, you know, I thought they were both wrong and also 
really imitating their elders. Mm. You know, they mm -hmm. were trying to pretend to be college kids and getting a piece of this action. So mm -hmm. I didn't like what was going on. Mm. And I you just, detected a fraud. Well, I detected uh, preening mm -hmm. and posturing. So uh, I wrote about all this uh, to my brother. I described what happened on, on the day and so on. And um, he wrote back. And he said, uh, that, that was a, an entertaining letter. That, that was really good. And then my father <laughs> said, why don't you send it to National Review? Mm. And we had been subscribing to National Review uh, for about six months. Mm. And that was then, as it is now, um, the premier conservative journal of opinion. I mean, there are many more now than there were then. Then yeah. it was unique. But uh, Bill Buckley was still the editor. Uh, running it, and none of us knew anything about journalism. I uh, didn't know any journalists, had never done any journalism. So, so your brother wasn't running in any kind of conservative group at Yale? No, no. Sort of uh, a Buckley-eyed reading no. God and Man at Yale no. in his back pocket? And all no, this nor stuff. were my parents yeah. either, really. Um, yeah. They, you know, they voted, but they weren't, hadn't been particularly political mm -hmm. before the late 60s. So uh, when did the National Review start? Was it around 1955? Oh, so it was around when uh, um, when Gold uh, when Goldwater. Was oh yes, and they were big, uh, big, yeah. big fans of that. And yeah, advocates. So uh, to send it off to National Review, I, I took Dear Bob off the front of it, and I <laughs> I tinkered with the ending a little bit, and then mm. I, I sent it away, <laughs> and then months passed, and I figured, well, you know, they didn't like it, and they just threw it away, and that's mm. that's what happens. Mm. And then I got a letter at the end of the year from the assistant managing editor who said, uh, I've just cleaned off my desk and found your article. Mm. I, I use that all the time. Uh, that I, Well, I realize <laughs> that is what happens. And, well, now with email, it probably happens less, but that yeah. used to be the rule for journalism. So uh, he said, uh, I, I've shown this uh, to the managing editor, uh, Priscilla Buckley, who is mm. one of Bill's sisters, and I've shown it to Mr. Buckley, and they like it, and they want to publish it. So I was I was just over the moon. Yeah. I was thrilled. Amazing. Uh, and then it it comes out the day after my fifteenth birthday, and then the third surprise was I got a check for a hundred eighty dollars. Wow! I didn't know you got paid. That's a lot of money. In fact, then. I w I was a little worried I might be asked to to contribute <laughs> something to because I figured there must be truly there are expenses. Um, <laughs> but so so that was my. Uh, my start, and I submitted a few more pieces in high school and college, which they ran. Well, see, that ruined you forever becoming an academic, getting paid for your writing. Is, uh, that's something we still haven't discovered, the academic right. crowd. And then um, <laughs> I, I was a, an intern, summer intern, between my junior and senior year of college. Mm. And then I went to work after I graduated, which was 1977, mm -hmm. and I'm still there. That's an amazing story. Uh, it was a very different publishing world back then, although I don't imagine magazines ever made any money. No, National yeah. Review uh, always ran in the red. Mm -hmm. uh, they did figure out cruises as a way to make money, which other magazines have picked up on and mm -hmm. other institutions. You know, you, you, block, you buy a block of rooms at a discount and then you offer them to your subscribers or supporters at, yeah. at the normal price they would pay. And, the, and they know you're getting the difference. It's a way of right. supporting the magazine, but they get to take a cruise and they get to be in proximity. Yeah, with these luminaries like yeah, Rick Brookhauser. Well, right. 
So, yeah. but no, apart from that, I mean, journals of opinion just do not make money and never have. Interesting, yeah. They're, they're really labors of, of love and ideology. Well, and, 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 and fund appeals, yeah. you know, to, to, uh, to keep the thing going. Which Mount Vernon also requires certain monies from people to keep it going. So remember that when you are getting your end-of-the-year uh, checks figured out. Okay, that's the commercial portion of the podcast here. Um, so you're a professional writer. You're an editor. You're, you're a journalist. Um, but you're more of an advocacy journalist. Is there a difference? Well, the point of view is explicit, yeah. uh, which was how all journalism used to be. I mean, in the founding era especially, the, the, the notion that a newspaper would be impartial would have just, just struck all of the founding fathers as, as peculiar. Mm. Uh, and some of them were, were very involved in journalism. Sam Adams was a publisher. Yeah. Uh, Alexander Hamilton um, founded and published the New York Evening Post, which is yeah, still around as the New York Post. Uh, it's one of the interesting, so Balin makes a big case about the difference between sort of the politicians in the 18th century in London would hire their writers, and in America you had to be your own writer. Most of the time, because there weren't that many. Yeah, we we did both. Uh, Hamilton yeah. did a lot of his own writing, but <laughs> uh, but Jefferson and Madison uh, got together and, and founded yeah, their I own newspaper sure. during during the Washington administration. And one of yeah. Madison's Princeton um, classmates was the editor of that. Yeah, Philip Furneaux. Right, and then other people, uh, Franklin's grandson Benjamin. Um, well, Rich. yeah, of course, Franklin. I mean, the great uh, founding journalist. Right, but right. So all these, um, all these newspapers uh, had points of view, uh, and it was really only in the, I think, very late in the nineteenth century, in the twentieth century, that the notion of objective journalism kind of took hold as an ideal. But so National Review and the other journals of opinion uh, are explicit in their points of view. Although we also like um, mainstream. Journalists, we do reporting, we do right. stories, yeah. uh, we do news analysis. Well, you were in college in the '70s when the new kind of wave of uh, of what was it called the the uh, the kind of Tom Wolfe style new journalism. Yeah, the new well, there you go, the new journalism, right. which it was a lot of story. It was a lot of rich sort of story with mm-hmm. elements of fiction. Not, I mean, not fictionalized, but the drama and the, the description, scene, scene yeah, setting, the scene the setting, dialogue. Yeah, yes. yeah. What did you think of all that? It must have been a very exciting time. Well, yeah, I to think mean, about being a writer. Tom Wolfe was just a delight to read. Uh, I was never a big Hunter Thompson fan, mm. but I could I could see why people liked yeah. it. National Review had a had a writer who, who just died a hmm. couple months ago, Keith Manow. He was a novelist, and he wrote a column for us in the back of our book where he just mm. went around New York and he would write about. Uh, yeah, he, he firewalked once. Uh, he wrote about um, a, a woman who had a, a phone sex operation. He, he wrote about the canonization of Tsar Nicholas II by a group of <laughs> Russian Orthodox. Uh, yeah. Just all kinds of stuff. He, yeah. would, he would And he would capture that very novelistically. Yeah. So the, the element of the National Review has always had to have kind of these uh, flavor pieces? I mean, the, there wasn't any argument in these. Were they, they were just there to kind of Keep the richness of the 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 intellectual life of the magazine. Well, Bill always prized good writing. Yeah, he always prized good writing. Um, 
Bill Rusher, who was our publisher for many years, told me once, he said, we are fortunate that the Communist Manifesto is not well written. <laughs> and Mein Kampf wasn't very good either. No, well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, that's what you get, I guess, from fascists and communists. Yeah, excellent. Um, so, um, well, so the, there's lots of interesting things, no doubt, to be talked about uh, with the National Review, but your writing career... So you're working with the review, but do you start writing books at some point? Yes, my, my first book was in, in 1986, and it was a campaign book. Mm, okay, right, yeah, it's the story yeah. of the, yeah, the, the election. The 84 election, yeah. and it was called The Outside Story, because my, my only original insight was that, and I still believe this, that, that the most important things in elections are the things that happen in public, mm. that millions of people have access to. and. You know, journalists are often very good about finding inside stories, you know, who was yeah. maneuvering. Well, and that's what everybody's looking for after elections is to know the kind of inside yeah, how ball do, how do game. How yeah. turn? But, yeah. but what decides the election is what occurs what people in the know. public. Yeah. So, I think they know. so that, that was what I sort of figured out covering mm. that election. That's what I called that book. Yeah. Uh, and then my second book was called The Way of the Wasp. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And that book started, I thought, well, maybe I'll do another campaign book about the 88 campaign. And my, my agent at the time said, uh, well, why don't you focus it on, on George H.W. Bush? Because yeah. he's, <laughs> he's clearly going to get the nomination yeah. of the Republican Party and he's going to win. And then I thought, no, I don't want to write about him. I want to write about his type. Because mm -hmm. yeah. he was getting a lot of flack early on Precisely for being a wasp and a certain kind of wealthy yeah. New England roots wasp, and so I thought you don't well, hear that very as as often anymore. Wasp. No, I mean I guess no. they're a disappearing breed. But. Well, I interviewed <laughs> the man who coined the term. Who oh. was a, a sociologist uh, named E. Digby Baltzell, <laughs> and he wrote a very interesting book called The Protestant Establishment. Yeah, right. And in that book, he coined. The term, it's white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Yeah. And now he said to me, he was a very old man when I interviewed mm. him, but he said, well, it fit on a chart. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he made an acronym. But I don't, you know, I don't buy that. The fact yeah. that it's this dangerous, unpleasant insect is, is yeah. part of the fun of, mm -hmm. the, of the thing. So that was my second book. Yeah. And then um, I was trying to think of a third. And I was just not coming up with anything. Mm. And my agent then, who is still my agent, is a man named Michael Carlyle. That's amazing. An excellent, terrific agent. A wonderful human being is what you need to say. Well, he is. He <laughs> is. And also, and he, and he <coughs> thought of the thing to do. He yeah. said, all right, look, give me a list of 10 ideas. Mm. You know, if you can't think of one thing, if yeah. someone makes you think of 10 things, that's a good way to go about it. So, I wrote a list of 10 ideas, and then my wife said, why don't you add George Washington to that list? And I'd written one piece on him already. That was in 1989 for the bicentennial of his first inauguration. And I, at that point... That wasn't the Man on Horseback piece, was it? It was, that a, came piece, later. It was a piece, it was <coughs> the back page of Time magazine. They, okay. had, they used yeah. to have an essay on their back page. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was writing... Uh, these things sometimes for time in those days. And I thought, well, you know, look, it, it's been 200 years and we've had a lot of other revolutions and most of them have not turned out very well. Yeah. And surely one of the factors 
of the difference is that we had George Washington. Mm. So, and that's what I wrote the piece about. And that also um, resulted in my first invitation to Mount Vernon. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so I back when Jim Reese was the director this was before Jim Reese. Oh, wow. So, uh, so I already had had done that, and so my wife said, you know, add Washington to your list. And then Michael looked at my list and he said, uh, that's the one I can sell, and he did. Hmm. And Interesting. So what was in the zeitgeist then that he? So what year is it, 93, 94? When you yeah, about, yeah. about. I wonder what was in the zeitgeist at that moment. That well, it, was, the, it was also the editor he took it yeah. to, a man named Erwin Glickus, okay. who was at the Free Press. Uh -huh. and was. Uh, I don't know that I'd call Erwin a conservative, but mm -hmm. he was willing to entertain you know, conservative writers and conservative thoughts. Right, right. And he had a kind of a quirky mind. He was a very good editor. And he just um, he thought, well, maybe maybe the time is 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 ripe for this. Yeah. Because you also also this is before the founders' revival. Yeah. No, that's what I, I was yeah wanted to get to. In. That's what I'm trying to think about. Yeah, because you you were one of the early people that we think of as launching the the, the revival of the founders. You think of uh, your Joe Washington Ellis. book. You think of Joe. He, David McCullough, of course, is going to come along a little later. Right, right. With the Big Adams book. That right. came out in, what, 98, 99? Uh, 2000, 2000. Somewhere in there. Or 2001, right. Massive, yeah. Right, Joe Ellis had written <coughs> his Passionate Sage, mm -hmm. his uh, mm -hmm. John Adams, Adams book, which yeah. was 93. And he was yeah. working on... Uh, Founding Brothers? His Jefferson book. Oh, yeah, yeah, The Sphinx. The Sphinx. Uh, American Sphinx, 97, 98, somewhere in there, probably. So... Um, so my book, well, and I, I have a, a story of gratitude hmm. about Joe Ellis. My book uh, comes out uh, in 1996, and uh, the Book of the Month Club, which still existed and still had I think some it still clout. does, doesn't it? Still, it didn't, yeah, it doesn't have the kind of clout. Yeah. This was when it was still, you know, still Big somewhat yeah. what it had been, mm -hmm. and they made it their... Uh, main selection, mm. which was great, and the Atlantic Monthly ran an excerpt and put it on the cover, which was nice, so mm. I'm feeling good about this. Mm. Then the Daily Review and the Times, the Times jumped the gun, mm. and they hammered it. It was Michiko Kakutani, and oh. she was just, she hated the book, <laughs> and she particularly hated my emphasis or my discussion of Washington's physique. Really? Which I thought was an important component in his leadership mm -hmm. and also something he's very mindful of. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a man who designs his own uniforms mm -hmm. in every war he serves in, French yeah. and Indian, American Revolution, quasi-war. Well, and everybody, every, in their descriptions of him, they talk about they it. They talk I mean, it's, about it. It was important to the people at the time. They talk about yeah. it. And that's something any leader, you know, when he does an inventory of his own qualities, you know, he has to be mindful of his appearance and use it somehow. Mm. Now, obviously, Mahatma Gandhi looked very different than George Washington, but he still used his appearance. Absolutely. You know, yeah. to make himself the, you know, the holy man and the simple man. All right, he used his looks that way. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln, similar to Washington in some ways, they're both tall, they're both strong, but Lincoln is an odd looking yeah. man but he so Lincoln becomes a funny man everybody looks odd in those pictures in the 1860s you know giant beards and all sorts well of the beard the beards don't <laughs> help anyone but but even without the beards yeah. he's got you know he's got an odd bone yeah. structure and he so he's funny looking yeah he became funny interesting 
Yeah. You know, so I, t I talked about this in the book, and oh, she hated it, and <laughs> you know, to be, and she jumped the gun on the review. She, it was published before the pub date, so uh, I thought, oh my God, and people, my friends were treating me as if I had died. I was getting <laughs> condolence calls. But then, the Times book review comes out, uh, and it's by Joseph Ellis, there you go. and it's on the cover of the book review, one of the two mm -hmm. books on the cover, mm -hmm. and he very much liked the book. Yeah. And um, when I met him the first time, he came to New York to talk, and I, you know, I wanted to offer him my firstborn. You know, <laughs> so grateful. And he said he had been after that review came out, he'd been picking up one of his kids at a at a school, and he's he's at Mount Holyoke, and yep. there are all those. There's a cluster of colleges. Yeah, uh, right. The front. There. Yeah, and lots so lots of academics and people he knows and. And they're all the parents coming to get their kids. And one of them said to him, well, I, I saw your review of that Washington book. You know, the author of that book works for National Review. <laughs> and yeah. Joe, who is a liberal Democrat, he said, yeah, I know that, but I like the book. Mm. Yeah. So, so uh, good for him. Yeah, that and, is. And very good for me. Extremely good for you. Um, uh, now, you would go on, uh, which I think, I mean, look, I mean, there, there's not very many very good short biographies of George Washington, one-volume biographies. There's yours, there's Joe Ellis's, His Excellency, and you can you can argue with somebody about which one is still the best. Um, I mean, obviously, Chernow's massive uh, Washington tome was intended to be a definitive biography, which is a different project right. than... That, the that's kind more of like Flexner and yeah, yeah, doing. yeah, and you know, and so there, it's a kind of on a different scale that you're going to use that book, uh, but I, I still have a ch people always obviously asking me what is the book, what is the best one volume book on Washington that's a biography. I want to read a biography, and it's either you or Joe that's going to come up because mm -hmm. it takes a good writer to take that massive life and make it comprehensible in mm -hmm. a way that isn't just one damn thing after another. Because he's such a big life, he's such a yes. full life of public achievement. You try to bring in the private side, and you try to bring in the entrepreneurship and some of these other aspects of him, and all of a sudden you're just a wash. Uh, so, I do think your both of y'all's ability to write well is is so fundamental of Washington in, in a way. And I think being a journalist helped me. Mm. You know, because you pick do, out the important things, uh, and you learn compression. Yeah. Um, one of my mentors in National Review said, yeah, don't be in love with every goddamn golden syllable. <laughs> you know, because you, you just have to cut sometimes. Yeah. Did you find it, I mean, it's been a long time since you wrote that book. Do you have memories of tr struggling to figure out how to frame it? Or, I mean, it just came to you? And No, that book was one of the, one of the easiest to write. Interesting. I, I got a, a conception of it, and it just, it just unfolded. Because mm. I think... Washington is a little hard to get, especially for us. We don't have photographs. And he's not eloquent. You know, he's not Jefferson. He's not Franklin. He's not yeah. Payne. I think he's a good writer. He's got great letters, but they're, like, long. I mean, you got to read them. <laughs> and he's, you know, yeah. he is a good writer, but he's yeah. just not, he doesn't have that, that kind of compression that the, yeah, the sound bites. writers have. <laughs> So it takes a while to figure him out, but when you do, there, there is a tremendous consistency to this man. 
And I remember when I, w when I was writing that book, there was some point about two-thirds of the way through, he's president, and I was trying to figure out to tell the story of something, which might have been Jay's treaty, but some, some big mm. event. And mm. I, you know, I'm going through my notes and looking back at the books I've read and so on, and I think I've, I think I've got it. And then I had this feeling, and it was almost a f like a physical feeling, it was once again, he has not let me down. <laughs> it was very personal that he'd, he'd done the right thing or the best possible thing. Mm. And it was, you know, once again, he's done this. Mm. And I also think that's a feeling pe many people at the time had. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were people like Jefferson who, who came to disagree with him. But... Uh, but even they retained, most of them retained this great degree of respect for him. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there was also, I think it was also a feeling on their part that what he was doing was so new and so unprecedented. Mm. And what they knew from history was many examples of how it goes wrong. Yeah. You know, they, they'd read their um, Shakespeare plays about Roman history, they'd read Plutarch, uh, they knew what had happened to the um, English Commonwealth in the 17th century. I mean, mm -hmm. there all these all these ways for um, free governments or relatively free governments to become unfree. Yeah. And here's this guy, and he's he, he it's all the mistakes he is not making. Mm. Yeah. And I think there there was just this feeling of, you know, he's 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 kept his faith with us. Yeah. So the book uh, you you were, you found it easy then to write these passages because you trusted uh, to a certain extent of what you were going to find and so you didn't struggle so much. Because because of his consistency. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because of his consistency. So you've you've gone on to write many other books on the founders. Obviously, uh, you're associated with Hamilton, of course, very strongly because of the big exhibit at the New York Historical right. Society, Alexander Hamilton, the man that made modern America. Right. Uh, or had the bicentennial of his death. We did that in uh, 2004. 2004. Okay, so that's when it was. I remember, so I was a professor at Binghamton at the time, and I remember whoever your publicist was, or they sent me all kinds of materials mm -hmm. that I should be using in my classroom. Probably Gilder Lehrman. They did it. It might have, yeah, it might have been the Gilder Lehrman. That, that makes sense. It would have been them, but I was going to say, you know, congratulations to you because it was all over the place, and I still remember a stack of these things I had in my office. But uh, so that exhibit made a big impact, I think. Mm -hmm. um, Richard Skilla loved it. I remember him telling me that it was a big deal. You had a big we Hamilton had a big banner, yeah, sort of like a ten dollar bill yeah, in yeah. day glow colors on the side of the yeah. uh, New York Historical Society, and we had to get Mayor Bloomberg's. Permission to do that because it's a landmark structure. Right. And, uh, you know, you're not allowed to hang flags off landmark structures, but uh, but we were able to do that. Now, so Hamilton, uh, would you you he man who made modern America? So you're making an aggressive argument there about you know the creation of a modern financial system. Mm -hmm. Hamilton's America looks more like the America that we've got certainly in New York City than you'd you'd say Jefferson uh, Jefferson's America. Um, I think I get all that. Uh, as a as a writer for the National Review, the affinity of, of a type of conservatism does Washington represent a type of conservatism to you in your mind? 
in the way that Hamilton represents a kind of fiscal responsibility? Um, well, uh, look, Hamilton, I don't think, fits uh, any contemporary ideology exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, mm -hmm. had, he had great confidence in the federal government being able to do certain things, particularly if he was there no, right. <laughs> doing yeah. them. Right. Um, That's all good statists believe. More than <laughs> you know, more than a lot of conservatives would, would today would let it do. Right. Although right. Yeah. You, you do have to say that his his notion of what the government could do was was much restricted than what ev all of yeah. us routinely accept now. Right. And right. there's a letter he writes in 1799 where he says, you know, we really. The federal government really should be able to uh, build roads and dig yeah. canals, so we need a constitutional amendment to yeah. give it the power to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah. know, they started doing that very early on, and they didn't uh, pause for any constitutional yeah, amendment. Yeah, that's right. And well, and he also, but he also believed in the power of markets, you know, but within a state mercantilist kind of system. Uh, right. He. Um, and he and he believed in modern finance, and, yeah. and he believed in people, you know, investing in that, and sometimes they'd be speculating in that, and sometimes those speculators would go bust. Yeah. And uh, one of his pals, uh, there was one bubble when he was Treasury Secretary, and it collapses, and one of his pals, who's the most reckless of speculators, um, he asked Hamilton to hold off on collecting mm -hmm. some of his debts that he owed to the federal government, and mm -hmm. Hamilton said, can't do that. Mm -hmm. And he ended up in debtor's prison. Yeah, interesting. But some of the other founders are associated with other tenets of conservatism in America today, like Jefferson's kind of local government um, mm -hmm. and emphasis against centralization rights. of power, emphasis on yeah rights and property rights and rights, freedom of conscience. Right. And, um, and one of them I wrote a book on uh, was James Madison. And that was interesting because I've been, you know, writing about Federalists and sort of uh, and taking their side, Washington, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Hamilton, uh, Governor Morris, who was the draftsman of the Constitution. Uh, I did one on the Adams family, and they're all, you know, they're all Federalists mm -hmm. of one kind or mm -hmm. another. And then I kind of crossed the political mm -hmm. uh, aisle to do James Madison. Mm -hmm. and I think that was good for me. Was that unsettling it. for you? No, it was, it was good for me. Yeah. It was good for me yeah. to see it, you know, from his perspective and why is he doing what he's doing. Yeah. And I thought, and I think, I think I'm not unique but unusual in, in noticing this. We all think of Madison as the father of the Constitution and, you know, rightly so. And as uh, the theorist of, of, of federalism and um, checks and balances and so on. Mm -hmm. But I also saw him as, of all the founders, the one who most grasped what the political system would become mm. and help make it that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he made the, the opposition party. Of, yeah. of opposition parties, of, That's of good. political media, uh, of, of parties as permanent organizations. Uh, he's, he's, he's very unusual for a Virginian of his time in that sense of him as a political counter, you know, cutting right. heads, oh, yeah. trying to win votes. And he right. is doing this early on. And, so. and, and getting people to do your work. Yeah. I mean, which is sort of Hamilton's great downfall. He's always doing everything <laughs> himself. But, you know, Madison yeah. and, and then Jefferson, they know, well, we 
all right, we've got to have, we, we can't write the newspaper yeah. articles ourselves, so we'll get some hack to do it. Yeah. And, you know, and we can't run every political errand we need to run. It, so I guess it helped, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I guess it helped in that the opinions that Jefferson and Madison wanted circulated were probably more widely popularly held and easier to digest than the opinions of Hamilton, which were powerful and, uh, and not widely known. I mean, they're not widely, people can't make arguments for the bank in the way that Hamilton needs them to be made in the same way that Jefferson can get people to write against the bank, you know what I mean? Does that, you know, the tenor of American politics at the time is not, the side of Hamilton isn't filled with all these sophisticates who can write about this stuff. Well, what Madison expresses, uh, the party that he and Jefferson founds, they called the Republican Party, which then changes its name in the 1830s to become the Democratic Party. Yeah. You know, it becomes Andrew Jackson's party, and he, it's the oldest party in the world, except for the Tories and the New Dems. And it's gone through amazing gyrations and changes of position, and its, it's, its base has changed. And yeah. Yeah. Well, like any, anything that old, yeah. it's had many changes. <laughs> but yeah. the one thing that I think is in its DNA, and Madison... If he doesn't put it there, he expresses it. One of the pieces he writes as the party is being founded, and this is by now, this is anti-Hamilton and anti-Federalist. He speaks of the opulent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those yeah. are the bad. That's the, the people versus the wealthy. Yeah. That's the one percent back in 1792. The mm. opulent. Mm. Now, of course, the well-born, the opulent. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson are pretty opulent. Mm. They're Virginia planters. But the original wealth, limousine liberals? Their <laughs> wealth comes from land and owning people, yeah. so that's okay. But all these bankers who buy long and sell short and all that kind of stuff, that's that's suspicious. Yeah. yeah. And we're still suspicious of it. It's Often corrupt. with good reason. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it, it is, that is that is an interesting connection between that, the represent the people you know, the democracy. I mean, that's kind of the, the nature where they, they got the name of the party. Uh, so there are two strains of thought I want to drag out with you. One is, um, uh, one is about leadership uh, studies. And, and it seems to me that over the course of the 90s, I mean, it began earlier, but over the course of the 90s and into the aughts, this notion of leadership um, development programs and leadership studies has grown into a cottage industry, it's certainly kind of in a, you know, in an airport industry is, you know, but also in a, in now a kind of academic sense, you've got obviously earlier work by like James McGregor Burns and others in the late 70s and early 80s. But it seems to me that there's something about the, the uh, your, you know, your work on the founders is overlapping with some kind of zeitgeist about searching for an understanding of leadership. Uh, and is, is that bound up somehow, do you think, with the, the enthusiasm for the founders that grows in the 1990s, or is it disconnected in your mind? Because you did write a book on Washington on leadership. Right. which, which grew so, out of, that grew out of a series of talks that yeah. I was asked to give by uh, First American Fund, which is an investment fund, mm -hmm, and uh, mm -hmm. I met the, um, I think he was the CEO, at a Gilbert Stewart show at the Metropolitan Museum, hmm. and they had paid for one room hmm. where all the Washington portraits were hung. Really? Yes. They paid for the Washington room. They paid. What's for this the guy's Washington name? I got to get this down. <laughs> well, and they did it because they 
they wanted to change their logo, change their image and their branding, and, mm -hmm. and they used an image of Washington in their new oh, right. uh, first American presentation. Fund. Yeah, first yeah. American fund. So that's that's how we met, and um, yeah, I I think I said, well, why don't I do some talks on Washington as a leader? And mm -hmm. they said, oh, great. Yeah. So I did half a dozen of these, and then the book grew Great, out yeah. of grew out mm -hmm. of those talks. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if the connection is necessary, but I, I think yeah. it certainly happened simultaneously. And the one thing, I mean, what the founders would have read yeah. as their leadership manual mm. is probably Plutarch. That's great. Yeah. And Plutarch, you know, was conscious of, of doing that. In one of his lives, I think it's the life of Timoleon, he says, I write these lives mm. to act as mirrors for myself. And I, you know, by, by looking at them and then looking at myself, I can improve myself. Mm. Now, he's probably thinking in more strictly personal, moral terms, mm. but there's also a leadership, obviously, lessons to be learned if that's yeah. what you're doing or aspiring to do. And certainly the founders were all familiar with, with those lives and also with how, how Shakespeare had mined them to produce his plays. Uh, and we know that, that Washington, um, he read biographies. Yeah. And he had uh, biographies of Charles Twelfth and Well, and even history, to the extent to which it was becoming more scientific, less sort of about providential history, it was about great people doing great mm -hmm. things. I mean, it was about lives. Uh, mm -hmm. It was... Yeah, it, that that's what it was. The story of English history was a contest between lives and you know, right. great figures. Well, and I think that's yeah. how you know that that is probably the best way to study leadership. I mean, mm. it's Harvard would call it the case method, right? Yeah. Uh, and and <laughs> uh, these are the cases that you look at. And I know that yeah. that's something that's that's maybe uh, goes against certain academic ah, theories that are that are current but uh, yeah, yeah it's something we all have an appetite for partly because we all have parents mm. you know those <laughs> are the first two two big people we know are, are yeah parents. the outsized people they literally they literally were giants when we were little exactly <laughs> and and you know and then as you as you grow up you know there are other figures you you encounter mm. so to transfer all that to history is not a you know is uh, yeah. is not a stretch so there's something fundamental human about that desire all right so that brings me nicely though to this question about the academic historian so famously uh, i guess it was probably in the late 90s maybe the early aughts uh, uh, all these these founders books were coming out uh, and there was a movement in the academy that was attacking these founders books and they saw them as a a part of the culture war that was ongoing and it was called uh, founders chic David Waldstreicher coined this phrase. There's a Jeff Pasley and David and um, uh, um, uh, another person, Andy Robertson, uh, edited a book called Beyond the Founders, which is a big, uh, I guess it came out in like 2004, five, six, something, somewhere in there, uh, with all the intention to kind of tell stories of the founding era without the founders being the kind of main, uh, you know, uh, m movers and shakers and. And there was an aggressive uh, assertion amongst these group of historians that, um, yeah, the people that wrote on the founders, and they lumped in yourself and Joe Ellis and David McCullen. So they lumped in different kinds of popular historians with different kinds of academic historians. But anybody who seemed to have a biography on a founder was lumped in with founder chic, and they definitely saw it as part of 
the culture wars that that you know that somehow whereas as you know Ellis of course is not a Republican or or a conservative in any way but he you know his work's being lumped in with the sort of you know William Bennett esque kind of we're going to tell moral and ethical tales through great white men uh, whereas over here the good guys in academia are going to tell the stories of of the forgotten and the people and they're going to try to do it in a way that doesn't make heroes of the founding fathers. How much, to what extent are you aware of that debate or not uh, as a non-academic? You obviously don't need to be aware of it, but is that, did it, was it ever on your radar? Well, sure. I mean, I, I know the phrase founder chic. I mean, yeah. that's, that penetrated to the popular culture. Yeah. The latest little skirmish about that was uh, related to the Hamilton musical. Absolutely, yeah. Which is the most successful popularization by far. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, some historians said, well, yeah. you know, Hamilton wasn't such a good guy. Yeah, well, this is Chernow's Hamilton, which is a Federalist version of Hamilton. It's a right. very powerful v version of him. Yeah. You know, I found an essay by Edmund Wilson that he wrote for the New Yorker in the mm. 40s. Hmm. He was reviewing a biography of Dr. Johnson, which had just come out, which he liked very much. Hmm. And then he, after he talked about the book, he sort of pulled back because it was by an academic. And he wanted to say that this, there was something unusual about this, this very favorable account hmm. that this man had given of his subject. And he said, now he's talking about literature, not about politics, but he said... You know, when academics write about, you know, get certain writers who are their subjects, you can get a feeling that if they met them, they wouldn't actually like them. <laughs> and then he went on to say, in fact, they don't like them. <laughs> yeah. You know, because they're sort of forced to keep mm. writing about them and, mm. and on and on. And, mm. and then he said that's why they come up with theories such as mm. that Walt Whitman is not original mm. or that Lord Byron was chaste, mm. <laughs> you know, which are completely <laughs> crazy great. theories. But, you know, it's new. It gives yeah. you a chance to say something new. It shows that you've read all their letters. Yeah. You know, you've done your homework. And it's a very entertaining kind of little piece mm -hmm. that Wilson wrote. And y you can see that in other disciplines. But I also mm -hmm. wonder if there wasn't, you know, the, the, the academic um, study of the founding era uh, was so influenced by people like Douglas Adair, who died young, mm -hmm. but also Edmund Morgan and Bernard Balin mm -hmm. had very long careers. And, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, Gordon right. Wood is sort of a younger one, and they, now he's yeah. emeritus. And their work is exact as well, yeah, by this well, group. Well, yeah. and, and what their work took the founding very seriously. Hmm. And they, you know, they said, look, these guys had reasons for why they thought they were doing all this. Let's hmm. see what those are. Hmm. No, and it wasn't uncritical by any means, but, but they were taking it very seriously. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, Maybe there has been a, a changing of the guard in the academy yeah. as far as that goes. Yeah, I, I would think that's absolutely right. I mean, right now we're in a moment, I think, where a lot more, there's a lot more work which we would probably describe as uh, uh, neo-progressive, that is to say, kind of reinvigorating the old Beardian saws about uh, the role of class struggle, the role of, um, you know, kind of gross fights over property, uh, that are at, at the, the motives why Washington, for instance, is going to want to be a revolutionary because he's got all these land interests 
in the West and any of these high ideals are just so much propaganda right. or so much, you know, Wind playing to scratch. Yeah, exactly. And, but, I, you know, I still think that, um, I don't think there's, well, there's no need for there to be consensus. There isn't consensus. But, I de- you know, there's a tenant, there's definitely a, a lean in going on. And then when you throw in questions related to uh, race, class, and gender, which seem to dominate the only way anybody's able to analyze anything right now, let alone in the academy, you see it in reading the, reading the Washington Post. This is a, everything is analyzed in well, these three lenses. So it's but a, you know, so often yeah. the founders get there first. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we all know how many of them were slave owners, but they all signed off on all men are created equal. Um, on July 4th, 1776, there was slavery in every state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then states begin ending that. I mean, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania doomed the war. Mm-hmm. Other states begin a process of doing it. It, it doesn't go below the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. But there are, there are manumissions in Virginia, individual manumissions. I mean, George Washington famously in his will, but mm-hmm. he, he's not even the largest. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. big slave owners who, who yeah. feel the contradiction. One of the Carters, yeah. You know, and this obviously, um, we still have the Civil War because it isn't enough, but the impulse was there and the thoughts were mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And people like Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were very mindful of this, you know, 70, 80 years later, and they use it yeah. in making their case. So let me ask you this broader question. We'll wrap up this very intriguing discussion, although we haven't even gotten to the next the thing. Well, we'll close with a few minutes on, on your next project, which is what I intended to talk to you about. Uh, is America an exceptional country in the exceptionalist model, not in the sort of like, yeah, every country's different and they got their own thing. Is there something unique about the American experiment in the world that uh, is out there? Or or is it not? Yes. Um, we, we started an era of revolutions, you know, which we've been living in for 240 years. Uh, mm. The French Revolution was, was <coughs> very influenced by this one. Mm. And so was the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, both mm-hmm. directly and then indirectly by the French. Mm-hmm. And uh, Governor Morris, he had some phrase in one of his letters that that it was we'd set off a a train of he was talking about gunpowder was the image that would set the world alight. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now um, then you can uh, you can get into arguments about how well has it been emulated elsewhere uh, how well can it be emulated yeah. on and on and on yeah but but I think it's it's clear uh, that, that history turned a page in 1775 and 76 and we're still in that volume yeah well that's that's a great answer and I'd, uh, I'd be interested to hear you uh, write about this in a broader uh, fashion at some point maybe that's the big uh, magnum obus after you do the next book which is on John Marshall Yes, uh, the working title is The Man Who Made the Supreme Court, A Life of John Marshall. Mm -hmm. And uh, this I owe to my friend uh, Akhil Lamar, who's a professor at the Yale Law School. And he said, you know, Rick, you ought to do this. Mm. And um, I take Akhil's advice very seriously. (laughs) But it it also, it does grow out of my interest in 
in Washington and in the founding yeah. period. Yeah. Uh, Marshall was a captain during the Revolution. Mm. Uh, his father had the same job Washington had. They were both surveyors for the Fairfaxes. Mm. Uh, What's his father's name? Thomas. Thomas. Thomas Marshall. Marshall. John Marshall meets Washington during the war. He's a judge advocate at Valley Forge. Hmm. Uh, he is the first major biographer of Washington. He yeah. has access to the papers via Washington's nephew Bushrod. He adores Washington. He reveres him. When he dies, uh, Associate Justice Story. Uh, says of Marshall in his eulogy that he was of the good old school of Federalists of which Washington is the acknowledged head. Mm. And you can see in his constitutional law, his great monumental decisions, so many of them reflect points of view and policies that were important to Federalists like Washington and Hamilton. Yeah. And sometimes he's just quoting Hamilton, either, either with attribution or without. Mm. So there is a, a continuity there. And when he dies in 1835, he's the last Federalist. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, well, Marshall's uh, been studied a lot by um, constitutional historians, and it's like a big tome. Who's it? Niemeyer? Neumeyer? Yes, yes. That came out maybe 2004 or five. something Very like that. Very good book. Very good book. But, it's, nice. but it's an academic study, right. largely. And it's about his cases, mostly. I mean, it's not a right. biography. Right. There was a big biography <coughs> by Gene Edwards Smith uh, mm -hmm. maybe 15 years ago. A mm. uh, nice short one by um, Charles Hobson, one yeah. of the editors of the papers. But I think he's relatively underdone because it is so legal, and that scares people off. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So you need to have a, a certain willingness to trudge through that and try to figure it out. But yeah. the reason for doing it yeah. is when is the Supreme Court not in the newspaper? Well, that's right. It's the most important branch these days. It seems like we're all waiting around for these nine, tel eight Talmudic judges to tell us what our rights are all the time now. Uh, so it's got an oversized relationship to American the system. And to some extent, that's Marshall's legacy. Mm. Now, one question yeah. I have to answer is, is it 100% his legacy? If well, he came back now, what would he think of the court's role? But certainly, he makes it. Look, when Marshall gets the job, when John Adams um, nominates him to yeah. be Chief Justice, Jay turns it down. Adams went back to yeah. Jay, yeah. who had been the first one, yeah. uh, who had left to become governor yeah. of New York. A much more powerful role. Yes, and then he asked Jay, "Would you like your? Would you like to be Chief Justice again?" Yeah. And Jay says, "No, I don't think the job has sufficient dignity." Mm. You know, so so here's President yeah. Adams in his lame duck days, <laughs> sitting in his office with his Secretary of State, much younger John Marshall, and Adams is saying like, "Who shall I? Who shall I nominate?" And yeah. it's like Marshall doesn't say anything, and then Adams looks at him and says, "I believe I will nominate you." <laughs> Try to get out of the room. Yeah, no, or it could be like a Dick Cheney uh, uh, search committee situation. Right? Maybe he asked Marshall, and he said, "Well, <laughs> right, right, right." That's interesting. Yeah. So he made so so okay. Now you you argued that Hamilton made modern America, but of course there's a big gap between the bank that he gets founded and the modern you know financial system. We sure. get there eventually. There's right. sort of like a long delay, and in some cases you might be making the same case for Marshall, in which he establishes a court that ultimately is going to get to the place where he's kind of positioning it, but there's also a long gap there, isn't there? Yes, there is, yeah. but he, you know, he turns it from an inconsiderable branch, and he also mm -hmm. helps to to fend off 
uh, was a very powerful early challenge by, by Jefferson and his allies. Yeah, uh, they yeah. impeach a justice yeah. of the Supreme Court. Um, Samuel Chase, uh, he's not, uh, not convicted by the Senate. Um, President Jefferson is uh, really enraged that um, Marshall uh, acquits Aaron Burr of treason. Mm. Well, I mean, he, he construes treason so strictly Narrowly, that the yeah. jury is yeah. forced uh, to acquit him. Yeah. Uh, well, they under, people in the 18th century, well, in the early 19th century, understood more powerfully, I think, than we do, the role that judges had to define you know, how the jury was going to rule on things. They, with their charges to the jury, yes. which was a whole dramatic aspect of the trial that seems to have been uh, professionalized out of it. Right, and, and it got a lot of them in trouble. I mean, yeah. this is one reason Justice Chase is impeached, because right. he had very uh, melodramatic <laughs> and quite political charges yeah. to his yeah. grand juries. And, yeah. and Marshall maybe begins the professionalization because he, mm. uh, he, he, he um, stops these charges to grand juries. Mm. Uh, mm. He, he also says, we're all going to wear black robes, plain back black robes. No more colored robes, no more wigs. You know, we're not going to look like English. Uh, no, come on, taking all the fun out of the court. You can't have a banana oh, republic no, unless no, you have fun. No, no, fun. <laughs> he was the most fun. Yeah. He, uh, when he was chief justice, the wine merchants of Washington <laughs> called their best stuff the Supreme Court because he was their best <laughs> Is that <customer>. right? <laughs> he loved his Madeira. Uh, amazing. Well, you mentioned, yeah, didn't you? You have a, a quip about... Uh, we can only have wine when it's raining outside. Well, yes. Let's when, tell that anecdote. Well, when he, when he <laughs> comes on the Supreme Court, it's already, um, you know, been in existence for uh, 11 years. He's the fourth chief justice. And they, uh, they have a custom, which is when they deliberate, they may only have wine if it's raining. Hmm. So apparently this is to cheer them up. So uh, we know this from Justice Story. Marshall would ask, Story to look outside and tell him what the weather was, and Story would say, "Well, the sun is shining," <laughs> and Marshall would say, "Well, our jurisdiction is so vast that it must be raining somewhere." <laughs> so wine was always served to the Marshall Court. <laughs> well, we very much look forward to that, but we are in a windowless room right now, and, and I can guarantee you it's raining outside, so we can have a glass of wine uh, sooner rather than later. But I, I really appreciate you sitting down with me and, and sharing. Uh, your story, and and uh, we really look forward to Marshall. Okay, it's all it's great to be here. Always great to be at Mount Vernon. Well, thank you, Rick. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.